church, I invite you to open with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 in just a moment. You say, now wait a minute, you threw us a curveball. We've been in the Psalms the past two weeks, and you said we were going to have this sermon series called Summer in the Psalms, and all through the month of June, we're going to stay in the Psalms. Well, you know that I don't take it lightly when we break a sermon series. Uh, Y'all know I'm a creature of habit, been here a year now with you, and I like to stick with a routine. But when the Lord says to go in a different direction, we certainly obey his direction. And this is the passage I believe that is particularly relevant to the day we're celebrating today, Father's Day. We're going to study just the first four verses in just a moment. But I want to begin this morning by tangibly illustrating for us as a church the importance of what we're going to talk about. You see, I think it's important that you understand how important this particular message is. I understand it's Father's Day. Some of you are here maybe for the first time or the first time in a while because you're here with your dad. But understand that for every person in this room, under the sound of my voice right now, this is important. And I want to show you how important it is. I want to invite every child in the room to stand up right where you're at right now just stand up some of you are coloring and things like that go ahead and stand up every kid in the room if they can't stand i know we got one over here go ahead and stand with her there we go if they're really short maybe stand on the pew that's great all right and then we have with some of the balcony there's several in the nursery back here so we we've got a lot of kids we've been blessed by this over the last year god has been so good to us if you think back a year ago or or certainly 18 months ago the kids that are standing remain standing don't sit down please stand up just for a minute y'all wanting to run around all the time just stand there for just a second okay y'all ruined the illustration uh so anyway we, we we celebrate the fact that these kids are here with us we celebrate what god has done over the last year and certainly the last 18 months is these faces were not in this room many of them at that time but i want to show you something i want all the kids in this section to sit down y'all remain standing in the middle this worked out so better in my head so much better so these kids in the middle remain standing you guys in the balcony sit down This is it. This is it. Because here's the reality, church. Y'all can be seated. Statistically speaking, eight out of ten children who are a part of the church now will not be by their 20th birthday. Eight out of ten. Unless something changes drastically in the life of the church, this is something I I read and researched carefully and several sources validated this particular stat. I know statistics are worth a dime a dozen sometimes, but this one holds some water. If something doesn't change, eight out of ten of the children that you saw standing in this room will not be a part of this church by their 20th birthday. And I included all the kids in the nursery in that count as well. I was generous. You can probably even think this morning to yourself about some of those who attended here as children who are not currently a part of the church at all. If I want to be very, very confrontational for just a moment, some of you are even parents to those children who are not here anymore. Now, it's not my intention to come down on anyone or to cast doubt or blame on your families, the homes that are represented here, or even this church. Trust me. I don't claim to be an expert in parenting. I've got five kids. The oldest is 10. The youngest is just a couple of months old. 
I don't have this figured out. If you ask my wife, she would agree with me, no doubt, that there are many times when we lay our head to rest at night and we're just happy that our kids aren't in jail and neither are we. We don't have it figured out. We're not experts in parenting. In fact, as I prepared this week's sermon, I couldn't help but cry tears of lament and speak words of repentance as I thought back about my own actions as a father at times and how it fell short, certainly, of who God had called me to be. But listen, church, remorse and guilt and regret are not the emotions we want to conjure up this morning. Shock and awe at that statistic is not even adequate to change us. So what do we do? I have a few ideas. These, take these lightly, okay? There's a point to these ideas, so listen to them carefully. One idea might be that we should hire a rock star children's pastor. Seriously. I mean, someone who really has it figured out and has it going on. We're going to go out, we're going to get the best children's pastor we can get as a church. We're going to spend way more money than we got to get him. And we're going to trust that on Sunday mornings, we can take our kids back there to him because discipleship and parenting is not something you want to try at home. And so certainly we should bring them to the church and let that happen here. And we're going to trust that they're, they're receiving the gospel, that they're being discipled, they're being brought up in the way of the Lord. And that's going to fix this problem. That, that 8 out of 10 statistic, it's not going to hold true anymore because we got the best children's pastor around. Maybe that's what we should do. Maybe some of you with older children, you have children that are ages 6 through 12th grade, and maybe, maybe here's the thing we should do. We should go get the best youth pastor we can possibly find. Get someone who's seminary trained, someone who has all their credentials necessary to, to run a great youth program. He's going to have great music. He's going to be relevant to them. He's going to be cool. He's going to disciple our children in ways that maybe we think that we can't, and we're going to trust it to him to do that job. Maybe that's what we should do. Here's another one. This one's cheap, and I didn't brief James on this before, so don't take this personal, okay? Maybe James and I should sit down this week and just have a very simple meeting. I'll take him to lunch. I'll buy lunch, okay? And we'll sit down, and we'll talk about how we should only have contemporary music in the church. We're going to change the style of music. We'll we'll change that. That'll fix everything, because then kids and youth, they're going to want to be here because they're going to enjoy the music, because they certainly don't like the preaching. Y'all can laugh at that. That's okay. I know it's tense. But maybe that's what we should do. It's simple. Simple change. It's actually not a simple change at all. But maybe that's what we should do. Or here's, a, here's one that I'll just really lay myself out there for a moment. Maybe, maybe you need to change pastors. I don't have the answers. I told you a moment ago I'm not an expert in parenting. I haven't written a great book on it or anything like that. I can't give you a how-to manual. Maybe you need a pastor who's done this, raised children, clearly has been successful at it, and he's written some great books on it, and he's going to come in here and tell us how to be great parents. Not only that, but he's going to be so engaging and so enthusiastic that the church is going to grow drastically and dramatically, and it's going to mask the problem of kids exodusing from the church. I hope every person in this room understands that none of those are the answers. None of that will work. But what will work? This. You hold it in your hand right there. This is sufficient. And the problem is we don't trust it to be sufficient. 
So many times in our culture, we say that it's not relevant anymore or it's not practical. It's not applicable to daily life. It's not applicable to parenting. It doesn't tell us how to be good parents. We should go read another book for, uh, for that perhaps. But listen to me, church. And write this down. The Bible is sufficient to instruct us in all matters of living, including how to parent our children. It is sufficient. It is more than adequate. You say, now, wait a minute, Pastor. I'm potty training my kids right now. It doesn't tell me how to fix that. Or, or hey, my kids aren't sleeping through the night. It's not telling me how to fix that. Or I got a rebellious teenager. It's not telling me how to fix that. Listen carefully. It does clearly tell us as parents that our chief responsibility is to shape our children, disciple our children through the power of the gospel. And if we do that, that statistic we just talked about, it's not true anymore. Again, I didn't have any desire to beat us over the head with this but it means something if we're going to move forward as a church if we're going to continue to see God do wonderful things in our midst we have to listen to him and he's given us his word to listen to we're only looking at four verses this morning so this this main idea clearly emerges from these four verses so write this down with us Christ is the foundation and the aim of our parenting. Christ is the foundation and the aim of our parenting. It's not a how-to manual. It's not a step-by-step program. It's not bringing someone else in to fix it. If we make Christ the foundation and the aim of our parenting, listen, we will be successful as parents. We will be successful at a, as a church at reaching young people and them sticking around. Because listen, there was a time in your life when Jesus got a hold of you and you're here. If we make the gospel the answer to all of our parenting woes, then they will be here as well. Ephesians chapter 6, I hope you found that by now. Stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Just the first four verses this morning. The word of the Lord says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we know your word is good and it is sufficient. So God, I simply ask this morning that you would anoint the proclamation and the reading of your word. Use your word to challenge us, to change us, and to encourage us. Let us be good stewards of our time together and listen carefully. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. This text is divided very clearly into two parts. The first part is, runs from verses 1 through 3, and then verse 4 stands alone. The first three verses are clearly instructions given to children. So if children are listening this morning, older, teenagers, whatever, maybe you just listened to the first half of the message this morning for sure. Because we see this in the first three verses, 
Christ is honored when children obey their parents. It brings honor to Christ when children obey their parents. And I know that's much easier said than done. I understand that sometimes obeying our parents is not fun, but it brings great honor to Christ when we do obey our parents. And it's founded upon this very important principle. We need to understand, parents, that children, they are important in the eyes of God. Children are important in the eyes of God. We need to understand the irony of this statement as we look at verse 1 in particular. Notice how this verse begins. It very simply says, children, obey your parents. Words are given, instructions are given directly to children. You say, well, that's not a big deal in 21st century culture. Of course, we try to teach our children to obey their parents. But understand something. When we understand the context in which this word was spoken and written into, a context that did everything but value children, we begin to understand why this is so important and at the heart of the gospel. Understand something. Children were anything besides valuable in the first century Greco-Roman world in which this particular book was written into. I read this past week that only 50% of the children who lived during that time only lived past the age of 10. Worse still, maybe cover the ears of your children for this one. Worse still, infants born with disabilities and unwanted female infants were commonly left exposed to the elements and abandoned on top of trash heaps. It wasn't until the late 4th century, 300 years later after the writing of the book of Ephesians, that the Christian Roman emperors outlawed such a practice. Children were not valuable in this particular context. And I would argue that in many cases, in our context as well, we are not that much different. So it's relevant that we need to understand that our parenting practices are founded upon understanding that children are valuable in the eyes of God. But again, Christ is the foundation of our parenting practices. So I want you to see that Jesus demonstrated in his earthly ministry how important children were. He revealed to us exactly how important they were by his ministry on this earth. I want to show you two ways in which he did that. Notice, first of all, that he tangibly demonstrated his love for children by physically healing many of them. Now, of course, when we think of miraculous activity in the ministry of Christ, we think about the raising of Lazarus. Certainly, we think about him healing blind people and those who were lame and all these kind of incidences. But understand, the most detailed accounts of miracles in the Gospels had to do with children. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter to life. In Matthew 15, he cast the demon out of a Gentile woman's daughter. In John chapter 4, he healed a royal official's son. And in Luke chapter 9, he healed a demon-possessed son of a common man. Notice the diversity in that list. You have common people, you have rich people. You have royalty and rulers, and you have the common person. You have males and you have females. Over and over again, by demonstrating his love for all children, male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, Jesus emphasized the value and the worth of all children. Jesus is the foundation of our parenting. Notice secondly, that he affirmed their worth by welcoming them and setting them forth as examples of a simple faith. Jesus encouraged his disciples, 
those closest to him to follow the example of children in how to follow him. Notice what he said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 14. He simply said, let the little children come to me. This was countercultural. It made no sense to anyone else, including the disciples. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, Jesus continued. He said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It requires a childlike faith, just like the children sitting in this room. Children are valuable in the eyes of God, and Jesus emphasized that over and over again. And so it is significant that verse number one begins with one word, addressing children. God believes that children can listen, they can comprehend, they can pay attention, and they can be shaped by the power of the gospel. But understand that there's something else we have to realize as we persist in this practice as parents. As we make Jesus the foundation of everything we do as parents, we got to understand, church, that the dynamics of the Christian home, they are countercultural. When we are following Jesus, we are going to parent our children different than others will. When we say that the Bible is sufficiently true and sufficiently applicable and sufficiently relevant to our lives, understand that is a very countercultural idea. If you don't believe me, look back at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. Notice how Paul begins this section there. He says very simply, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. Paul says, listen, you need to pay attention to the way that you're living because it's going to be different than the way other people are living. Don't put your eyes on the way that they are living and follow their example. No, there is clearly a gospel. There is clearly a mandate in scripture of how you are to live your life. And practically that pertains to your marriage and the way you parent your kids. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, just a few verses down, I'm not going to open this can of worms again. I did on Mother's Day, but you can look at it there briefly. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. That is a very countercultural idea. Yes, I received a lot of text messages and emails after that sermon. Christian homes are countercultural homes. We live differently, or at least we should our children should live differently or at least they should i want to give you three good reasons that children should obey their parents as we wrap up this first point verse number one we see that it is the right thing to do it's the right thing to do real simple real straightforward notice what paul says he says children obey your parents in the lord because this is right in other words paul says hey this is common sense guys it makes sense for kids to obey their parents. And every parent in the room said, amen, it does. Listen, it made sense in the Roman world in which this was written into as well. It was written into a culture that valued an honor-shame society. What that means is children were meant to bring honor to their families by the lives that they lived. And when they didn't, it brought great shame on their homes. That's why in the first century context, you had things like arranged marriages happening. Because mom and dad wanted to make sure that their kids didn't mess that decision up. And so it was an honor-shame culture. Pleasing your parents was important. But notice also, I believe there's another reason Paul said this. And it's not explicit in the text. But I think it's very, if we were to talk to Paul now, I think he would say something like this. It makes sense for us to live obedient lives. It makes sense for our children to obey their parents. Because guess what? Jesus was the example of such obedience. Obedience. 
Think back with me just for a moment to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. Keep in mind, he is both God and man. All at once, all at the same time, he is divine and he is human, all at once. And yet he prays in the garden. He says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Crying tears that turned into sweat drops of blood. Jesus prayed relentlessly and fiercely, and he said, I submit to the Father's will regarding going to the cross. Jesus, over and over again, not only did he affirm the value of children like we saw a moment ago, he was the example of perfect obedience, and so should we. The second reason children should obey their parents, in verse number two, we see that it is foundational to other horizontal relationships. It's foundational to other horizontal relationships. Notice what Paul does in verse 2. He quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. I want you to understand, maybe jot down Deuteronomy chapter 5 there in your notes. I'm not going to turn back there with you, but Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where you find the retelling of the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel as they're about to cross in the promised land. And you find in that list of the commandments, all ten of them mentioned there, in a particular order. What you find is the first four commandments are very much so vertical in nature. How do we relate to God? God simply says, you're not going to have any gods before me. You're not going to make any idols. You're going to keep the Sabbath day holy, right? You're not going to take my name in vain. These four very commonly understood commandments. And every one of them, the first four, have everything to do with how we relate to God. But guess what? Commandment number five is a turning point in that list because it turns the attention to a horizontal relationship. The first and most foundational of the horizontal relationships, and that is the relationship between children and their parents. And then you find in commandments six through ten, how do we relate to our fellow man? Don't steal his stuff. Don't sleep with his wife. Don't covet his belongings. Don't murder him, right? That list that we all know, every one of those having to do with a horizontal relationship. Understand something. Children should obey their parents because they've got to get that one right in order to relate to everyone else. A disobedient child has every indication of not relating well with others down the road. And so obedience, teaching obedience in our homes as parents, it is important. It means something. But lastly, notice this, this third reason why children should obey their parents. We find that it is vital for community stability. It is vital for community stability. Notice this in verse 3. Paul relays this promise once again from back in Deuteronomy. He says, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Understand when they would have heard this for the very first time, the church at Ephesus was reading this, they would have understood that what Paul was talking about was a promise that was specifically given to the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy. God specifically said it. He meant what he said. He said, listen, if you're going to live well, if you're going to prosper in the land that you're going into, you have to obey your parents. And if you do, guess what? You're going to do well. You're going to thrive. You're going to live a long life. And he meant that because if you look back into Exodus, you find the harsh judgment of God concerning children being disobedient. Guess what happened? If a child raised his hand to his father or his mother, that was it. They were stoned to death. That's how it happened. If a child was blatantly disrespecting his parents in a public place, guess what? 
they were stoned to death. It wasn't just a whooping with a belt. It was important in that culture. It was important at that time. Why? Because God knew it meant the flourishing of their future culture and society. Church, it means the same exact thing to us today as well. Remember that statistic I shared with you at the very beginning of the message. If nothing changes, if nothing changes, First Baptist Church is one, maybe two generations away from not existing anymore. You say, well, hey, this has been going on for a long time. We're a very old, well-established church. Understand, as this world changes, as this world becomes increasingly secular, the church must be much more intentional at being gospel-saturated and Jesus-centered. We have no other choice. It, it means the stability of the body of Christ. Point number two, as we get to verse four, we find that Christ is honored when parents steward their children well. So the first three verses, very strong words to children. I understand not a child in this room listened to me, and that's okay. Y'all talk about it over lunch. Verse 4 explicitly is addressed to parents, and you look at word, the first word in verse number 4, you find that it's addressed specifically to fathers. Why is that? You find that the order of the home that God prescribes in the New Testament is a very uh, particular order. The man is meant to be the head of the home, not in an arrogant, egotistical, domineering way, but in the way of a servant gently guiding, directing, and shepherding his home. And so in verse four, Paul begins very matter-of-factly, and he says, this word is to fathers. Now understand, moms, you're not off the hook. I know Mother's Day was tough. Just come on with us, okay? We're in this together, so hang on tight. God has some very strong words for parents here. Three things he says to us about Christ-saturated parenting. The first thing he says is this, Christ-saturated parenting begins with recognizing that our children are not our own. Paul begins with a very negative command. He's talking about not stirring up anger in your children. Understand that tendency is rooted in a selfish way of thinking. Wanting your children to be just like you, so to speak. I want you to hear something very clearly from me today as your pastor. I kind of held this in my back pocket for my whole first year, so I'm laying it out here now, okay? It would make me incredibly happy, overwhelmingly joyous to see some of the children that are in this room today deployed overseas as missionaries into cultures that have never heard the gospel. Mom and dad, you're sitting there now and you're saying, wait a minute, those are my kids you're talking about. Those are my children. As I look at teenagers in this room this morning, it is the aim of my heart. I am bent in that direction of seeing that happen. Why? Because it is the Great Commission. You say, now wait a minute, Pastor, those are my children. They're not. They're God's children. Very simply, we are stewards of their lives this side of eternity. And as parents, we should want nothing less than for them to fulfill the great commission of Christ on this earth. If 
historical context provides further clarification in this passage. In the ancient world, fathers in particular were known to be harsh, incredibly harsh, in fact. Based upon their dissatisfaction with their children, it was within the bounds of the law for them to sell them into slavery or even beat them to within an inch of their life. You say, well, that's certainly not going to happen here. But here's what does happen. Fathers, moms, don't inconsistently dole out discipline in your home. Don't play the comparison game between your child and other children, especially your own children. Don't superimpose your dreams upon them, what you have in mind for their lives. If God calls them to the mission field, guess what? God calls them to the mission field. Don't fail to express your approval of them, even in the little things. And don't have unrealistic expectations of them and fail to account for the fact that they are only children. Cross-saturated parenting, it begins with recognizing that our children are not our own. They are God's. Secondly, Christ-saturated parenting involves disciplining children for their good and God's glory. Discipline is important. Now, I'm not going to explain to you how you should discipline your children. I'm not interested in that debate today. I know there are many ways to discipline your child, whether it be grounding or spanking or anything like that. I was spanked as a kid, and some of you weren't, and it shows. <laughs> I'm just making sure y'all are still with me. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 5 through 11, this very same word, in, in this passage, it's worded as training them in the Lord. That very same word is used there in Hebrews chapter 12 to explain what it means to be disciplined by the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews explains that we should treasure and value those moments when we were disciplined by the Lord. Because guess what? It means his eyes are on us. It means that he loves us. It means that he's shaping us into who he desires for us to be. Listen, when we are Christ-saturated as parents, we do discipline our children. And we do it for their good and God's glory. We understand that through our discipline of them as parents, we are shaping them and molding them by the authority of the Lord in the home into God-honoring people. And so it's important. Lastly, I really wanted to get to this one. So if you, you're not listening, make sure you listen here, okay? Christ-saturated parenting, it holds the gospel before our children. Christ-saturated parenting, it holds the gospel before children. You may jot down Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 1 through 9. This is an example of what it means to teach children in the ways of the Lord. This passage of Scripture, again, is very important. Just like the Ten Commandments that are mentioned just a chapter before that, God continues to affirm in chapter 6, this is how you are to teach your children. And here's what's important from that passage. It is very clear it is very obvious that parents are meant to speak the words of God to their children. Audible words spoken to their children. The implication here is that you have to be doing more than just living a godly example before children. I've said this before and I will say it again. Evangelism is nothing less than God honoring conduct. But it is indeed so much more. Evangelism, effective evangelism involves living a God-honoring life before people and at the same time proclaiming the gospel on every occasion when you are given an opportunity. Danny Aiken, the seminary president from the school I just graduated from, a man I admire deep, much and, and respect, 
He said this, very matter-of-factly. He said, listen, here's what God-centered parenting is. Having a lot of fun with your kids and talking about Jesus as much as you possibly can. That's what it is. Loving on your kids, enjoying life with your kids, and at every turn, making sure that you turn as many conversations as possible towards the gospel. God-honoring parents do this. You say, now, wait a minute. I'm not a teacher of the scriptures. You say, hey, I'm the, I'm the man of the house, pastor. I heard you on that front, and I, it was tough to hear, and I heard you. Listen, I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to take care of, of mom here at the house. I'm going to make sure that our home is stable financially. I'm going to do all those things that a good godly man should do. But I'm not going to teach. That's just not me. There are no more equipped or better teachers of your children in this room than you are, mom and dad. You are the best and most effective teachers of your children. We have a church culture in the 21st century that applauds us as churches for having dynamic and explosive children's programs and youth ministries. Having the right people who are professionals at teaching and discipling our children. Understand something, church. It doesn't matter who is here. It doesn't matter who you drop your kids off to minister to them. You are still the most effective disciple maker in your home. We got some great teachers in this church. I'm going to tell you something. I didn't tell them this ahead of time. I hope they're not offended. You are a better teacher of your children and your home than Margaret Davis is. You are. And Margaret's all right with me saying that. You are a better disciple maker of your children than Leslie Jackson is. And they are great teachers. Don't get me wrong. They do an incredible job making disciples in the context of this church and in this community. But in the context of your home, you are the disciple maker. It's not up to me. It's not up to Jeremy Watson. It's not up to any other teacher who may be here. It is up to you, mom and dad. I know this has been very confrontational, so I want to conclude by encouraging you just for a moment. And then I have a very special way we're going to close out our service. Listen carefully and write this down. Nothing reveals our brokenness more than parenting. There is nothing this side of eternity that reveals how broken and fallen we are than parenting children. When you combine young children who from the moment of birth, they are their brokenness is constantly on display in their fallen nature with parents who are still imperfect this side of eternity, guess what? You have a recipe for nuclear war. Then comes the yelling, perhaps the spanking, the angry words, the slamming of doors, the hanging up of the phone, and then the reclusing into the bedroom, the withdrawal. I told you at the beginning of the message, and it was funny then, it's, it's, it's somewhat serious. Most days, Sharia and I count it as a win that we just have our heads above water as parents. Because it's hard. Not just because we have five kids, but if you got one, it's hard. Here's the reality. Dad, you're going to get it wrong as a dad. Mom, you're going to get it wrong as a mom. But how about this? How about this morning you recognize all of your imperfections, not just as a dad or as a mom, 
but as a broken sinner. Rest in knowing this. You can be an imperfect parent who clings to a perfect Savior. I said at the beginning of the message, and I say it again because I mean it. Christ is the foundation and the aim of parenting. And this word that we've studied this morning, these four simple, direct verses, they are sufficient in instructing us on how to be God-honoring parents. 